Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge, the first of the year with me, Peter Bruce. It's been a busy start to the year, but some of the stories whirling around us are moving so fast, I'm inclined to let them settle before bringing this podcast laser-like focus to bear on them. So my guest to kick off the year is Donald Mackay, a guy I always call when the complexities of our often confusing or frankly confused industrial policies get the better of me. Donald is CEO of XA Global Trade Advisor, and his clients are some of South Africa's biggest industrial companies. Not that he doesn't help the little guys too, and heaven knows with industrial and trade policy often being made up on the go, entrepreneurs entrepreneurs need all the help they can get. So Donald, thanks for joining me. I'm going to keep this introduction short because we don't have a lot of time. But in the past few weeks since the holidays began, I suppose I've been reading all sorts of bad news about our industries. For a start, our biggest steel company, ArcelorMittal, appears to be shutting down half of its business. The long products, you know, the bars and rods that keep our buildings and dams standing up when the wind blows or when the ground shakes. And there's been a lot of uh, talk in the last couple of weeks uh, from car makers who are desperate for some sort of finality or guidance from the government on what its policy on EVs, electric vehicles, is going to be. Because if it doesn't happen soon, the new EV plans are going to go elsewhere. And the government likes to remind us that it's at the center of economy. So of the, I'm just going to do that again. The government likes to remind us that it's at the center of the economy. So what's going wrong? Is it not on top of things? Or, you know, are, are we are we late with EVs? Is uh, is it possible to save ArcelorMittal's long products business? Yeah. Hi, Peter. So let's perhaps start with the with the steel. I mean, what we're dealing with here is is government being being forced to confront the reality that you only have trade offs. You you cannot simply pick a winner. For every winner you pick, um, someone's going to be on the other side of that winner and potentially losing. And the the underlying problem with the ArcelorMittal transaction is government's been very protective of ArcelorMittal over the years, but they've also decided that ArcelorMittal needed competition as they are a monopoly. And in order to get that competition into the market, they've created a series of subsidies and price distortions that have allowed minimals to proliferate. So the minimals melt down the scrap metal. The problem is the minimals, because of the subsidy structures that have been created, are producing scrap metal, are producing long products out of scrap metal at prices that ArcelorMittal simply can't compete with. And so either the, the, the subsidies that are flowing to the scrap metal smelters will have to reduce, and for many of them, they would not survive without the support, or ArcelorMittal has to remove those products out of the market and, and close down their Newcastle mill. But it seems difficult for me to see how you can you can support both sides of this short of them making up the shortfall that ArcelorMittal has with some form of subsidy to them. But um, but that way disaster lies. You, you can't subsidize businesses to success. But it seems to me, you know, that the uh, trade industry and, and competition uh, Minister uh, Ibrahim Patel has a sort of view of of manufacturing, particularly where where he understands all of the inputs and outputs, uh, and feels that he can create a perfect circle out of all of them, um, which, uh, if left to his own devices, he would 
um, be able to create out of these, be able to one, create new companies. You talk about the mini mills there. Um, uh, and, and in this circle or cycle, um, everybody would survive, everybody would thrive, and everybody would create, be creating jobs, but it's not happening. No, but, but, but also we are a capitalist economy despite government's best efforts to change that. And in a capitalist economy, there are winners and losers. And the losers are no less important than the winners because they send the signals to the rest of the market on what not to do. When, when we don't allow the failing to occur, we, we entrench uncompetitive businesses and you, you end up um, just ensuring the sun never sets on, on a sunset industry or sunset business, which means the new, more innovative businesses also never have space to grow because you're, you're locking in the status quo. And that, that inability to let go, I believe, is at the heart of why we struggle to grow the economy, because we're keeping the old national party structure to the economy of domination by a small number of very big businesses. But the, Donald, the, the 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 mini mills that you talk about are these um, sort of thriving private sector companies, which you know, in the in the face of a monopoly, were struggling, or are these are these mini mills new businesses started by? The minister himself. Well, so there's a combination of those. There's there's some that have been around for a really long time, and others that are newer. The problem with the mini mills are you you have two key raw materials that go into a mini mill, which is the scrap metal and electricity. So all of these run on something called an electric arc furnace. So they're not run out on gas, for example. Um, electricity is both scarce and becoming increasingly expensive. And so in order for these businesses to thrive, there's got to be a perpetual intervention in the market to, to offset the, the fact that, for example, the global price of, of some of the scrap metals are quite high. So people would prefer to export it. So the artificial interference, to my mind, would be required for as long as we wish to have mini mills in South Africa. I can't see a moment where we could let that go. And that becomes extremely expensive for the country and for all the manufacturers and mines and construction companies upstream who are now selling their, their scrap metal at quite a hefty discount. But, but what, does that discount then feed through into the prices of the products that are made with the steel, Donald? Or, or you, you mentioned price distortions early, earlier yes, on. Yes, it absolutely how does. does. That, how does so, that work? So it it, it definitely feeds into the price of the finished product. Um, so the finished products in South Africa are, are cheap, even by global standards. Um, much of the steel that's made out of scrap metal is of the cheapest in the world at the moment. So it absolutely feeds into the lower prices of those products. Um, but of course, if you, if you don't have the benefit of the discounted scrap into your value chain, um, then you're just producing and having to recover your full cost. So, yes, it definitely impacts the final selling price, which is low. No question. And are, and are the mini mills profitable? Um, I, well, that's hard to know. None of, the, none of the mini mills are listed, so we don't have financials. But we, we do know that, that government keeps pouring astonishing amounts of money into the mini mills. Um, as of about two years ago, the IDC's exposure to the mini mills was around 14 billion rand. 
that appears mm. to have increased by a, around another one and a half billion. And if we compare that to ArcelorMittal, whose market capitalization is 1.2 billion, um, then you very quickly understand how staggering the investment into the minimals has actually been. And the RDC is the, the RDC is the Industrial Development Corporation, and yes. it's an arm. It's an arm of the government reporting to Minister Patel, yes. and and so basically, let me get this right. So it is it's subsidising the mini mills, which are able to produce more cheaply than ArcelorMittal, which he's also he's also trying to protect by way of quite extensive uh, tariff barriers, if I'm not mistaken, a couple of years ago. Um, That's right. And 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 he's and that has failed. The mini mills, however, are thriving or. Are they still, you know, are they still sucking up public money? Well, so I, in fact, the way these have been structured is the the subsidies are not flowing so much directly from government, although there does appear to be some cheap finance. The way that they've been funded is by a set of laws which force down the price of scrap. So what government has done is, rather than provide the subsidy out of the public purse, they have forced by law the people that are upstream of the minimals to cover that cost. So right. in other words, when, when NAMPAC or whoever it is, you know, Ford, Toyota has scrap metal, they are recovering considerably less for that scrap. Uh, Transnet, by the way, as South Africa's largest generator of scrap steel, would be sucking up the bulk of that discount um, at a time when I think we can all agree they probably need the money. So just explain that to me. So when you say sucking up the dis- the, the 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 discount is 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 to the steel um, su- supplier, the the generator of scrap, or is it to the consumer? Yes. Yeah, so what will happen is the, the 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 way the discounts work is on twofold. The one is if you generate scrap, let's say you are Transnet. Um, one of the ways this has been dealt with is the Transnet are no longer allowed to hold public auctions. So Transnet can only sell to a very small group of, of the minimals and foundries. Then you're connected to that, um, if you're Ford or Toyota, let's say you would want to export your scrap steel because the global scrap price is quite high. Um, you can't do that. You first have to sell it to the domestic industry at something called the uh, price preference system, which is a discount to the global price. So you have to sell at at least 30% below the global price or you can't get an export permit. If you get an offer at that price, you have to take it. Um, And and if you don't? Well, if you don't, then you just need to sit with the stock, but you can't export it. Brief. So if you're... If you're in Cape Town, for example, and you 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 make a sale to a minimal in in Gauteng, which is where most of the minimals are, um, the rules were again changed to say that you now also have to cover the cost of transport. So you can't sell it to the minimal in Johannesburg, and they need to come and collect it. the The rules say you have to pay for the transport. And so, you know, endlessly, the, the, the price pressure just keeps getting cranked up. But let's assume eventually you, you don't get an offer at, at PPS. When you attempt to export the product, you will now pay an export duty of 20%. So you either sell it locally or you export it and pay an export duty. And, of course, all of this just ensures that the, the price of the product remains artificially low in South Africa. 
And and Donald, is there a, developing a, a, a sort of a scrap mountain of South Africa? I mean, if people aren't um, able to sell it at the price they wanted to, are they holding onto it or burying it or sneaking it out? There well, was a, there was there was a, there was a ban on scrap metal. It was never a full ban. So there were some exceptions allowed, but but yes, there was a ban. So the, the mountains of scrap don't develop because typically you're purchasing the scrap for cash, and you've got quite a long period before you get paid. Um, your you know scrap takes up a lot of space, so you can't sit on the product and hope for a better price because you will you will simply run out of cash at some point. So the if you if you won't take the offer now, you'll you'll take it a few weeks from now when you start running out of money. So because you don't have an alternative to a local sale, you can very quickly see how the price pressure would um, would be applied to get rid of that stock. And of course, that's what eventually happens. If you if you can't get the offer at the right price, um, you can only hold on it for so long before you you just can't afford to. What sort of effect generally is the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition having on our manufacturing? Would you just a broad brushstroke? I mean, are we are we making new products because we are now sort of have this targeted new policy with lots of uh, master plans, you know, from everything from eggs to chickens to steel, textiles? Or are we marking time? Are we going backwards? What's happening? Yeah, so most of the master plans um, are, are at the macro level don't appear to be generating um, a net economic benefit. So this doesn't mean there aren't there aren't winners in the process, but but if the number of winners and the value of the wins equals the number of the losses, then we're not making any progress. So the question is, are we creating greater economic value than the cost we're imposing? And that doesn't seem to be the case. So what what is happening though is the, the number of winners are small, but they win a lot. So if, if, if you've positioned yourself well, the win is big. But at a sectoral level, we, we've looked at most of the, um, the master plans, and we're struggling to see any which have, which have actually generated a net, a net good. And part of that is, is not just that you have the master plans, but because if you, if you view the kind of policies as a pyramid, you would say right at the bottom of the pyramid are all the infrastructural issues. People need to feel safe. There has to be running water, electricity. So when Astral, for example, who's the beneficiary of the high duties on chicken, but then has to take whatever rent they would have earned from that high duty and spend it on getting water into their factory because the municipalities failed then the net effect of that is not actually to do any good because all you've done is you've spent the money that you've already paid in rates and taxes as well as income tax, et cetera, and you're having to do the municipality's job. So then you're not getting a benefit. You're just diverting the money from one place in the economy to another. But but so let's assume in a in, in a perfect world that that the electricity was was fine and the and the and the water was running and clean. Um would then the protections given to Astral, um, which is, I think, our biggest poultry company, um, would they be working? Would would Astral be just flying? Well, it, 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 that would work for Astral. Of course, it would be in a better position if we if we went down that road. 
But, yeah. but other things began happening. So, for example, there's a 62% duty on chicken, which is high. Now, when you have such a high duty, you're disincentivized from exporting. So when yeah. you raise the duties enough, people don't want to enter export markets because why would you with, with the very high protection? Yeah. So the challenge you have with, with high duties is you create uncompetitive industries because they would rather thrive in a smaller market with less competition than in a big market with lots of competition. It's just cheaper and easier. And so over time, these protectionist policies, which include the subsidies, uh, create a low innovation environment, and we see fewer new businesses coming through. And I mean, this just talks to what I'd said earlier, which is our economy remains looking very much the same as it did in 1994. Um, it's in no way being transformed. All that's happened is that different people owning these businesses, but structurally, we still have the same businesses dominating. Yeah. You see, you did a report last year on on import tariffs and and that they were working and the kind of rebates that companies could get. And you were very gloomy about this. Um, I remember you. Well, I'm going to read part of it. You say there's been a precipitous drop number of tariff applications with ITAC. This is the, the little body inside the DTIC that that regulates uh, tariffs. A precipitous drop in the number of tariff applications with ITAC. Something we've been predicting for a while. It doesn't matter if it's duty increases or reductions. The number of applications has dropped to its lowest level in 10 years, you say. Yes. What do we take from that? What do, what, is it, what do you mean? Well, so, Is that good or bad? No, it's, it's very bad. So what this is telling us is that there's, there's the content of a policy. So, for example, um, government has a, a policy of localization. And then you'd say, well, how does that get implemented? Well, one of the ways it gets implemented is you, you alter the duty structures for your manufactured goods locally. You, you get rid of duties on raw materials where you can't buy it locally, and perhaps you, you raise the duties when, when people need protection. But, but all of that works fine on paper. If no decisions are ever taken, then it doesn't matter how many applications come in. If, if nothing ever changes... Then, then that particular lever serves no purpose. And I think what has happened is companies have realized that the, the, the promise made is this tariff investigation will be wrapped up in six months. And that, and that is the promise made if you go visit ITAC's yeah. website. Um, but the reality is you could, you could wait four to five years for a decision. And th that's not a rounding error. That's just a staggering difference in time. And so... If you've been on the wrong side of such a lengthy delay, why would you choose to engage with the process again? And you're going to tell all your mates this was terrible, it was a waste of time, and they're also not going to do it. So we, we the people have lost faith in the system is what I think has happened, and they don't trust, not so much that they will get what they're asking for, but that they'll get a response to what they're asking for within a reasonable time. So tell me and tell me about ITAC then. Is it is the is this a human problem? Do they are they competent? Are they do they have enough people, enough experience? Where do you think the problem lies? Is it a is it a broader political problem? Yes, I think it is. We we have um I, I don't think ITAC are short of people, 
but most of the delay doesn't sit with ITAC. So ITAC would typically finish their investigations um, well within the six-month limit. The problem is when it leaves ITAC, and it either goes to the Minister of Trade and then from him to the Minister of Finance, and that is where the delays sit. So we will we will see it. There's a recent example where the, the amount of time the decision sat with ITAC was 83 days, which is just a little bit over the amount of time they should take. But it then sat with the two ministers for one and a half thousand days. Agreed. So, yes. So that, that just kind of describes how big the problem is. Now, the, the, the problem can't be that these are very complicated matters. We need time to apply our mind to it. There's something else is wrong. I don't entirely know what that something else is, but but that clearly is an issue. If you look at the sugar sector, which is fairly distressed, sugar duties should be triggered automatically. There was meant to be a duty increase on the 24th of July last year. That never got triggered. So the duty remained free. The forfeited duty that SARS should have collected in that period if they had implemented on time was 153 million rand. So these are these are huge amounts of money. And for a sector that is distressed, that you know, the pain, the pain is real when these decisions don't happen efficiently. Uh, I also um uh came across because I know the companies that you that are talking about. Your comments on on Patel's reciprocal agreements, and I was interested in reciprocal agreements because when they first were mooted, I remember getting a copy uh, from somebody uh, of what a reciprocal agreement might look like. And basically, um, uh, it you know if job creation is was his is his currency, and no surprise that it is because he's a trade unionist. The reciprocal agreements seem to be almost a form of racketeering. In other words. You would get, you would get your rebate, provided you increased the number of people you hired, and if you didn't do that, you wouldn't get the rebate. So he was basically saying the people you already hire don't count. Um, you, you want to keep your business going, reward us politically by hiring more people. Yeah, so that, that's. I mean, it's a very good summary. I think what what happens with things like the reciprocal agreements is there's a there's a portion of companies that say we're not prepared to do that. We see that particularly with foreign owned businesses who look at this and say, look, we, we're uncomfortable with that, yeah. and we won't do it. So there's a portion of them that just forfeit the benefit. You know, just keep paying a hundred million rand a year in import duties for a product they can't buy locally because they yeah. won't engage. The other thing is that you, you can't fix our unemployment problem sort of one tariff application at a time, you know, yeah. 10 jobs created. Yeah. You've got to make it much easier for people to invest, for example. And you can't do that in single investments. We see the same thing with the Competition Commission. You know, we, we impose all of these conditions before a merger can happen. There's, there's, if you look at the aggregate unemployment numbers, they remain stubbornly high. Yeah. So we're not putting a dent into those, which means you can, of course, you can extract an extra 10 jobs or 50 jobs out of one company. 50 jobs takes you nowhere. But in the process of extracting that, that company may become less competitive. So you might win in the short term. They might have to let those people go after three years. Someone else who's importing might suddenly find themselves more competitive than that company. So th these interventions are the kind of things which I believe 
at best, you're just shifting money from one place to another. You're not fixing the competitiveness of the industry. And you can't make companies more competitive by forcing them to incur a cost that they don't want to incur. You've got a client called Matador Butchery, which is yeah. um, this is in Somerset East, a place I'm sure not many people know even exists. But the Matador Butchery story is amazing. Tell us a little bit about it. They employed 90 people full-time in 2010, right? Yes. And then what happened? Yeah, so, so there have been a couple of duty increases on chicken, on, on products that um, Matador cannot buy locally. So they contacted yeah. 70 local chicken producers to say, we need deboned chicken leg quarters. And no one was prepared to supply them. They applied for a rebate of duty, which is at 42% on deboned chicken. And they said, we'd like to not pay this duty for as long as no one local wishes to supply us. And that was years ago. So they, they still don't have the concession. And their employment has shrunk. Um, I mean, the business is struggling. It's, it's not a great area to be unemployed in. No. And How many, how many uh, people in the company now do you know? I, I I need to check up with Vanner, but I, I think it would be in the early 20s. Wow. wow. So it's when we when we put out our updated report on the 28th of Feb, we'll we'll update the Matador situation. But it's years and years, and it doesn't appear to be a hard problem to solve. You can't get the product locally, give the duty relief. Um and this is a small business, you know, so it's we're not helping and it's a poor, poor part of the country. I mean, that's from your neck yeah. of the woods. No, absolutely. But I mean, what's so hard about this? You know, if you can't, if the product isn't made locally, why make it hard to get? You know, people want it. Yeah, I, I, I have no, I have no, there's no, no answer. answer. Yeah. But no. That's how yeah. it works. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Donald, uh, let's just leave um, the, the detail stuff for, for a moment and just go on to policy generally. I mean, the, just on the on generally on in in particularly in industry, and you see this, you will see this a lot in your in your business. The the general idea about South Africa is that you know we got good policies but bad implementation. And I wonder whether that's the right way to look at it. Yeah, I I hear that all the time. I, yet to see the good policies that are are referenced i mean my, my yes. experience we have we have lots of of bad policies and but thank goodness we have very poor capacity to implement them well or yeah. i think we, we might find ourselves in even more trouble um so yes you know the the, the big success stories are, are things like the the social welfare grants and I accept that that is a very good thing that's happened. But but when the focus is on how much we can get that number up, rather than yeah. how to get fewer people onto social grants and into work, um, then that's an example to me of where we've we've lost the plot. I mean, the, the, the president announced uh, at the ANC birthday celebrations that 28 million people now received uh, some sort of welfare payment. If you if you add the give or take, two million people employed by government that takes yeah. us to about half of south africa's population is being funded by a very small group of taxpayers that yeah. uh, that, that doesn't feel to me like a, a good healthy sustainable situation at all are we becoming more or less productive 
Well, definitely productivity drops. And we, we can see this. Some of it is, is just huge own goals. I mean, of course, nothing drops productivity like no electricity. Yeah. The ports are broken. And they didn't have to be, but they but they now are. We don't have a functioning rail system. And given that we don't have navigable waterways in South Africa, rail is extremely important to bring down the cost of, of moving goods both inside the country and, and to the rest of the world. And so these things have a huge effect on our ability to be productive and therefore competitive. So I would say our productivity is dropping We've, we've created fairly high barriers to people being employed. And so the, the person who, who is unproductive but young never gets that first job, never learns a skill set. Um, we, have, we have minimum wages, which, which sit far above what people can productively contribute. And our cost of capital is cheaper than labor. So people would rather invest in automation despite the fact that half the country doesn't have work. Yeah. Is it, is, it, is it a lack of enterprise, do you think? You know, I mean, you can create a company, but a, but a business a business rather than a company needs some degree of entrepreneurship or enterprise. And I wonder whether we're not in a situation where, where you know, apartheid and colonialism made sure that, that among the majority population, black population of South Africa, there were no there were no there were no entrepreneurs, and you, you you couldn't run a business, you couldn't have a business. Yes. And uh, you know, I always remember my dad coming home in Amtata. He was a building contractor, and he always brought work home. You know, and he did work in front of in front of the fire, in front of the radio, um, uh, while he was you know while we were chatting in in the evening. And and I, I suppose a lot of black people never had that experience because their dads were were laborers and they weren't able to bring home a contract to study or a or a or a bill of uh, uh, you know a bill of quantities to to tender on i mean there's a fabulous lack of enterprise in this country and and how do we how do you fix that i mean you can't you can't teach it well so i i agree but, but i think to some degree um, our education system certainly not helping even yeah. if it so that I mean that's not a, a secret, but if half if half the kids entering primary school never matriculate, um, then then this really doesn't matter. I I read a paper recently which stated that the first thousand days of a of a child's education is the single most important in their lives. That's the, the biggest determinant of how they will do into their future, and of course. We, we find that, that kids in primary school, by the end of primary school, can't read for comprehension, can't do basic arithmetic. These, these are critical skills. You know, dishing up free post-school education only has so much benefit if the vast mm. majority of the population is not literate or numerate. Um, and all of these factors played. So I think, yes, I, I, I do agree with you, Peter, but I don't think we need it to be in this situation. I suspect if we if we didn't find our education system politicized through the role of trade unions in the in the teaching profession, we probably would have better outcomes um, and possibly even by spending less money than we do. Could you teach enterprise at school? Could you teach teach business studies? It, it, you know, we we do, we we do life skills apparently. Um, 
uh, could you teach profit and loss? Well, I I had a I had a lecturer, Peter, when I did my MBA many many years ago, um, an Australian who who actually had done exactly that. He had set up programs in countries like Malaysia, which were specifically designed to work on the assumption that many kids would never get a job and that they needed to be taught the basics of how to run a business. And that was a program added onto the normal school program, um, sort of done afterwards. And it started in primary school, ran all the way through high school. And I, I took him to meet the Department of Education. And this, this stage was in the late 90s. And they were just had absolutely no interest. But, I mean, he, he has done this successfully. So the answer is, I do believe, I mean, education is not my area of expertise, but I do believe um, it can be taught. Yeah, yeah. Donald, just finally, one of the things that will come up in the next couple of weeks, I suppose, months, you know, we've got we've got uh, parliament uh, reconvening, we've got an election coming up, there's a, two State of the Nation addresses guaranteed this year. Um, one of the things that are going to come up in all of this is compacting. So, right, where the government's view of getting the um, or approach to getting the economy moving isn't to encourage enterprise, it's to do deals with big business and get big business to help the government run its companies, its big companies properly. Um, not to help necessarily, to, uh, not to privatize them, but just to get some advice or perhaps second some business people into Transnet or or uh, ESCOM or whatever it might be. What do you think of compacting generally as an approach to... to um, solving our economic problems i mean is it a is it a good thing or does it does it start does it from the go send the wrong message in other words a, a bunch of elite businessmen talking to a bunch of elite politicians um about intractable problems and nobody else seems to have to worry about them yes i think our, our version of compacting is deeply problematic if we if we look at the master plans for example um there are people that are in the room and then there's the vast majority of people in that industry that don't even know there's a room they can be in. And this, this, this information imbalance between those who are in the know and have access um, has, has horrible consequences. So there's a, there's a distinct advantage to getting access to, to the ministers or the, the information. There's the potential for all kinds of shady dealings with confidential information shared between competitors and for those who are outside, the, the price they pay is terrible. So I think our version of social compacting is not terribly good. I think we're not addressing the underlying, the underlying problems. Um, we, can, we, we have exceptional management in South Africa. I've no doubt the private sector could give Transnet or ESCOM people that could do the job. But the political will to do that is not there. We, we saw that with Andre de at, at ESCOM. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a, that's a thankless job. You know, ended with with a, with a cyanide coffee. Uh, I mean, it just there's just no appeal to that. But it, because we insist on the political involvement, the normal incentives that cause people to do well in business or to, for that matter, fail, um, disappear. You know, your politicians don't lose their jobs in South Africa because they're bad at what they do. They lose their jobs because they're on the wrong political team. And for as long as our SOEs, for example, are run that way, I don't see in a sustainable way how we make this work. 
it uh, for as long as it remains politicized, I I think there's a horrible price to pay. Yeah. Well, we're going to we're going to leave it there. Thank you, Donald, so much for for joining us. And we really must keep doing this more regularly this year. Um, so I hope you come back. Um, and thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, sorry to take so long to bring the podcast back this year. Um, we'll be back, or I'll be back next week um, with another podcast from the Edge. Thanks so much for joining us. Keep safe. Bye bye.